as we approach the end of May, uh, just by show of hands, over the course of the last seven days, how many of you have run both your furnace and your air conditioner? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's supposed to be beautiful today, and so as we uh, remember, I'm sorry, tomorrow, as we remember those who uh, have... Uh, given their lives for the sake of our freedoms. Hopefully, you'll have an opportunity to gather with family and friends and uh, enjoy some time together. Our sermon series is called The First Five because every week we are looking at one of the first five books of the Bible, the entire book. And this is the fourth week of our study. And so we come to the fourth book of the Bible today, which is a boring name unless you're an accountant, right? The book of... Numbers, right? The book of Numbers. I had somebody ask me, are you just going to read all of the counts that are at the beginning of the book? Just read the numbers to us? I'm not going to do that. We're going to try and summarize the book this morning. And as a part of that, we're actually going to do so looking at a New Testament passage. And so as strange as this is for our study in Numbers this morning, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10 as we look at the book of Numbers this morning, if you'd like to follow along. Have you ever been in a situation where you were filled with hope and then as things went along, everything just fell apart? You ever been in in that situation where you had such high hopes and then everything just went terribly wrong? I was trying to think of a situation that we could all resonate with We had super high hopes and then everything went wrong. And my mind was drawn to January 15th of 2018. January 15th of 2018 was one day after the Minnesota Vikings defeated a very good New Orleans Saints team in a game that has often been referred to as the Minneapolis Miracle. Some of you remember, and you remember how much hope there was that week after that game. People were posting videos of their reactions, running around their living rooms like crazy people, hugging strangers at bars. (laughs) There, There was so much hope and a feeling of destiny. The Minneapolis miracle proved that we were headed to the Super Bowl, baby. Those feelings of hope and destiny only grew when we found out that our NFC championship opponent were the Philadelphia Eagles, a team whose starting quarterback was out for the season and who were being led by a backup journeyman named Nick Foles. Certainly we would defeat this backup quarterback and we were on our way to the big show. Certainly. Hope and destiny only grew during that NFC championship game when the Vikings scored first. Ain't no stopping us now. Right, here we go. And then all of that hope turned into horror. <laughs> As the Philadelphia Eagles scored 38 straight unanswered points and beat the Vikings 38 to 7 that day. There was so much hope, so much positive feeling, and everything turned into a big mess. And that's the book of Numbers. At the beginning of the book of Numbers, there is so much hope, so much hope in the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers because the biggest problem that the people of Israel had had been solved. The the biggest problem they had is that God himself had come to dwell with them in the tabernacle, but because God is holy and the people of Israel were not holy, they couldn't interact with him. 
They couldn't have relationship with him, even though he dwelt among them. And so in the book that we looked at last week, the book of Exodus, it ends with the people of Israel unable to have relationship and interaction and be in the presence of God. It ends with these words. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was the very best that Israel had to offer. But he could not go into the tabernacle and be in the very presence of God and experience that glory because God is holy and people are unholy. But then the book of Leviticus happens. Right? Remember how exciting two weeks ago was? When we dug into Leviticus, and within the book of Leviticus, the priesthood is established. Priestly ceremony is established. Substitutionary sacrifices are established. Atonement can be made. And through all of that, everything changes, and now there are people who can actually enter into the presence of God. And Numbers 1, verse 1, starts with that amazing hope that the people of Israel have, that now they can dwell with God. The very first verse says this, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Where is Moses when God spoke to him here? He's in the tent of meeting, the exact place he couldn't go at the end of Exodus. There is so much hope for the people of Israel now. God is going to, in the book of Numbers, lead them to a promised land filled with his blessing. God is going to dwell with his people. As we read those first four chapters of the book of Numbers, anyone read those first four chapters of the book of Numbers? Right? It can produce this feeling in us of, oh, what am I doing reading this? It's just one large number after another associated with some family as a part of some tribe, and they're all supposed to camp in some formation. And we're like, ah, what am I doing reading this? But if we are able to fight through the numbers of the book of Numbers, we can see that those first four chapters are, in fact, dripping with hope. Because those numbers are counts of the people that God is going to bring into that blessed promised land. And that formation that they're supposed to camp in is a formation of hope because when you look at that camp arrangement that God gives, who's at the center of the camp? God is at the center of the camp. Every time Israel settles, they are reminded God is at the center of your life. The God of the universe dwells with you as you camp. And when they get up to move to a new place, they're given a formation for that. And who is at the lead of the moving formation? It's God who leads every step and guides them in everything they do. Because how much hope is there in all of this? As we read these first four chapters, they're headed to a blessed promised land to dwell in the land God had promised to them. They are, every time they, they camp, God is at the center of their lives and their community. When they go out, God leads and guides them in everything. Chapters 5 through 10 of Numbers gives some new purity laws that will help them stand apart from all of the Gentile nations around them so that those Gentile nations are attracted to the purity of God's people. And as we read it, we go, of course they're going to keep these purity laws. God's with them. And there is so much hope as the people set out from Mount Sinai at the end of chapter 10. And no sooner do they set out from that mountain than hope is dashed and everything falls apart. 
and throughout the rest of the book of Numbers, it is an account where this hope turns into a horror show travel journal where the people's hearts are filled with rebellion and idolatry, where their mouths are filled with grumbling and complaining, where their hearts are filled with lust and, and discouragement. They're dissatisfied with God. They're dissatisfied with their leaders. And all hope turns into horror as they move on. Do you know that the New Testament says that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to learn from these wilderness wanderings of Israel? The New Testament is quite clear. Don't don't just skip past the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is all about the sin of Israel and their wilderness wanderings. And it says, believers, read that and learn from it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 talks about the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers. And it says, nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. All of the sin and rebellion that we read about in the book of Numbers, it exists, it it is written down so that you'll learn from it and not make those same mistakes that Israel made. Just a couple of verses later in 1 Corinthians 10, it said, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. As we look at numbers, we see example of one example after another of rebellion and grumbling and idolatry. And all of these examples are meant to teach us and instruct us, don't live like that. Don't be like these people as they wandered in the wilderness. Learn from their mistakes, 1 Corinthians 10 is saying. Uh, A few years ago, I was on a missions exploration trip with a group of pastors in the country of Nicaragua. And the first night, I sat at the restaurant in the hotel and was enjoying dinner with a couple of those pastors, and I got the chicken, and each of the pastors I was sitting with got the seafood salad. We enjoyed our dinner. I went to bed. The following morning, I got up, and the leader of our group told us the following morning, the two guys that I'd eaten dinner with would not be joining us because neither of them were feeling well. I would learn later that, in fact, they were very sick to their stomachs. And so the following night, when we ate dinner at the restaurant in the hotel, I did not get the seafood salad. (laughs) But apparently one member of our group hadn't heard this account and ordered the seafood salad. And the following morning, we were told by our leader they would not be joining us because they were sick to their stomach. Over the course of that week, I never ordered the seafood salad once. Why? I didn't get sick from it. I didn't order the seafood salad because I have a remarkable superpower to learn from the mistakes of others. It's not a superpower at all, is it? We all have that ability to learn from the mistakes of others, and that's precisely what 1 Corinthians 10 is calling us to. Read through the wilderness wanderings and learn from the mistakes that Israel made, and don't let any of that creep into your hearts or into your lives. That is what the wilderness wanderings are all about for us. 
What are these sins that they committed in the wilderness? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 gives us a great outline of the sins that they committed in the wilderness, starting with idolatry. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of, uh, some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The people of Israel went astray worshiping idols. The quote here reminds us of Exodus chapter 32 and that even while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people were making a golden calf to worship. Now we might think, well, okay, sure, but after they received the Ten Commandments and got those commandments about not making graven images and about not putting any other God ahead of the one true God, certainly then they didn't worship any more idols. Any of you ever read portions of the Old Testament? Did that work out? No, absolutely not. And Numbers reminds us of that. As a matter of fact, in Numbers 25, a passage we'll look at in just a second, the people of Israel, for the first time, worship a false god named Baal. Worship of an idol that would go on for hundreds of years within Israel as they sought wealth, bountiful crops, and fertility from Baal rather than from the one true God. Now, we don't worship stone images like they did at that point. But as I put a list of the idols that we might be tempted to worship in our day and age up on the screen, I would invite all of us to do a quick heart check. We need to do this regularly in our lives. Are there any ways in which the idols that we're most tempted to pursue are are creeping in? Anything that is becoming more important than God, more important than what he would have for us, is an idol in our lives. And so, so I'd encourage you to think about that. Has God or accumulation for self been the focus of your possessions? Have you been seeking security in God or through financial accumulation? Is your daily contentment in your relationship with Jesus or are you seeking that from food, sex, or entertainment? Is relationship with God your time priority Or is your time focused on achieving success according to the world's standards? In the decisions you make and what you say, are you putting politics or your desire for power ahead of God's word? Is it pleasing God or pleasing people that's driving your decision making? Anything, no matter how good it is, that takes God's place as the priority in our life and in our decision-making is an idol. And we're to regularly be doing heart checks in order to make sure that it is Jesus who sits on the throne of our lives in our daily living. God says this was a real problem for the people of Israel. Don't let any idols creep into your life. Learn from them. Now Israel's idolatry was mixed with sexual immorality. The next verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 8, talks about that sexual immorality. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now this is a reference from an event in Numbers chapter 25. And it's summarized in a really uncomfortable verse, Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, that says... While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So the people of Israel came to this region that shall not be named. And in the midst of that time where they lived there, the men of Israel began to have sexual relationship with the women of Moab outside of marriage. 
the Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus, the New Testament epistles are all unified in their teaching that sexual relationship is for a marriage between a man and a woman. And that any sexual relationship that takes place outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is sin. And Israel is indulging in that sexual sin here. Having sexual relationships outside of the bonds of marriage. God takes this seriously and he disciplines his people here. A plague breaks out upon the nation of Israel as they're in the midst of their sexual immorality. A plague breaks out and thousands of Israelites die. Not only that, God commands Moses to take the chiefs among the people who have led them into this sexual immorality and he says, hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And that's what Moses did. God is holy. And idolatry and sexual immorality like we see in Numbers 25 is serious. It's not to be taken lightly. God disciplines his people severely when they fall into this. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that this is a passage for us, the church. And this passage and so many others call us to focus on purity of worship and purity in our sexual relationships within the church. So often it seems like the church is hyper-focused on sexual immorality out there in the world. That terrible world and all of that awful sexual immorality. But the prophet's primary words weren't for the pagan nations. The prophet's primary words were for God's people. And if we're frustrated by anything in life, far more than pagans acting like pagans, it should be when God's people act like pagans. And our primary concern and frustration should be around sexual righteousness for God's people. We are called to be holy other, to be distinct from the world around us. And so God says, don't let the sins of Israel creep in to my bride, the church. Don't turn a blind eye when sexual sin creeps into your life, creeps into the life of my people. Deal with it. But but Israel's sins went even further than this. They tested God. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10 says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Who did the people of Israel put to the test? They put Christ to the test. I'm sorry, how did the people of Israel put Christ to the test 1,500 years before Jesus was born? Isn't this a wonderful verse for Trinity Sunday? Right? It is a reminder to us that the Son of God has always been and will always be and was present as God living there among his people. They put Christ, they put God to the test. What is putting God to the test? Well, in order to understand that, we have to look at the passage that's referenced here. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21.4, we read from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So the children of Israel are trying to enter the promised land. They try to go through the nation of Edom. And Edom says, no, you don't. You're not coming through here. And so the people of Israel have to try and find another way into the promised land. Oh man, they've been working at this for a long time. 
And so we read in the rest of verse 4, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now you guys, just in hearing that, can hear the contradiction in their grumbling, right? Right? There is no food, and we loathe this worthless food. I'm sorry, which is it? You have food that you loathe, or do you have no food? Well, in fact, they have food, and they have water everywhere they go within the wilderness. God provides for, for them miraculous water on several occasions. He has provided grains through this miracle food manna that comes from the heavens. He has provided meat for them when they grumbled about wanting meat. God has provided for every one of their needs, but they are not satisfied with God's provision, and they want their wants, and they want it now. They're not satisfied with the provision of the great provider. They're not satisfied with his timing. They want their wants and they want it now. Right? Is that, is that ever your heart? God has provided for you, but you want something else. He's provided for your needs, but you want your wants. You're not satisfied with your daily bread. You want some fancy bread. Right? Is, that, is that ever our hearts? I thought about what that might look like to test the Lord in this way, and a few things that came to my mind. Uh, God gives us friends, and we are discontent that he hasn't given us the right friend. Right? God, you've given me so many wonderful friends, but Disney has taught me that genuine long-term happiness comes from finding Prince or Princess Charming, and I haven't found that person yet, and I will be discontent until I find them. God gives us a home and we're discontent about how it isn't as nice as the homes of others. God gives us a church to worship with and we're discontent that it doesn't worship the way we want. God gives us a job so we can make a living and we're discontent because we want a different job. Testing God is when God, the great provider, provides for our needs and we say, this daily bread, eh, can you give us some fancy bread, please, God? We want our wants and we'd like it in our timing. Israel tested God in this way by not being satisfied with his provision. And so God brings discipline upon them. Numbers 21.6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God sent snakes on the plain of Edom, and they bit the people, and the people began to die from it. Every time that we have seen sin in the last few minutes, whether it's idolatry or sexual immorality or whether it is this testing of God, when the people of Israel enter into it, God brings painful discipline into their lives. And the purpose of that discipline that God brings is to return them to him, to return them to his ways. And, and that's what happens, at least temporarily here in this passage, because in verse 7, we read, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents for us. So Moses prayed for the people. If God didn't discipline them, they would never have turned back. But God disciplines them. And they respond and turn back to God and to his ways. 
But we see here in the snakes and the discipline how serious it is to test God, our great provider. The final sin that we see lived out in the wilderness and talked about in 1 Corinthians 10 might be the sin that we are most prone to in the American church today of all of those that are listed, and that is the sin of grumbling. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. When did the Israelites grumble in the book of Numbers? Right, I can see a few of you who just mouthed it. Right, what did you mouth? When didn't they grumble? Right, it's perpetual grumbling throughout this book. They leave Mount Sinai in Numbers 10 filled with hope. And by two verses into Numbers chapter 11, they are grumbling about the miracle food that God is sending them, saying, we would like more variety in the buffet, God. Uh, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Yeah, why was it at no cost? Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. He said, we wish we were back in Egypt where we had meat and all of those foods that make your breath bad. Oh yeah, and slavery where they were working us to death. They kind of forget about that part. They grumble about what God has provided. And they grumble against Moses and they grumble against Aaron. Then in the very next chapter, Aaron and Moses' sister Miriam grumble against Moses. You've got too much power and authority here. We should be in on the decision-making Moses. And as Miriam is grumbling against her brother, she is struck with a skin disease that she has until she repents of her grumbling. In Numbers 14, the people grumble because 12 spies are sent into the land. And when they return, 10 of the 12 say, we got some trouble. There's big armies there. I don't think we can do this. And so the people of Israel begin to grumble. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in the wilderness? And God disciplines those people for, his, for their grumbling and says, none of you will enter the promised land. Your children will enter the promised land, but none of you will enter the promised land. Then in Numbers chapter 16, a guy named Korah leads a rebellion among the Levites who think Moses has too much authority. And they're like, come on, we should have some of this authority. And so they begin to grumble against Moses and grumble against the other leaders. And they're grumbling against God. And God opens up the earth and swallows them. And then the people of Israel immediately grumble about the discipline that God sent upon the grumblers. And so God sends a plague upon Israel for it. And so now God is disciplining the grumblers because they were grumbling about the discipline that God sent against the grumblers. Or something like that. That's Numbers chapters 11 through 16. And I got to stop here for the sake of time. Right, or we could keep going with the grumbling throughout the book of Numbers. As a matter of fact, go ahead and read Numbers 11 through 16. I didn't even cover all of the grumbling that is contained in those chapters. Grumbling and complaining. But grumbling and complaining isn't unique to Israel, is it? We have seen the American church do more grumbling in the last 15 months than perhaps it has ever done. 
church people grumbling about political leaders, church people grumbling about decisions that have been made, church people grumbling about their neighbors and the decisions they're making, church people grumbling about businesses and the decisions they're making, church people grumbling about their church, church people grumbling on the radio, church people grumbling on social media, pastors grumbling from the pulpit. I don't know, maybe that's what I'm doing right now. We need to be reminded that 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, yeah, that, that was the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and you are not to be like that. Grumbling brings judgment. In the book of Numbers, when people grumbled, God opens the earth and swallows them. He consumes them by fire. He brings plagues upon them and takes thousands of lives at a time. Within the New Testament context, James chapter 5, verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And we're reminded that the judge hears every word, aren't we? Matthew chapter 12 tells us you will be judged for every careless word that you speak. The judge doesn't miss any of the words that we say. No matter how quietly we may whisper them in our home, no matter how far we may be from the church building when we say them, no matter how many times we start our grumbling with phrases like, well, I really like this person, but, or I really don't mean any offense, but, the judge hears it all. He says, be free of this grumbling because it's a lack of grumbling that sets God's people apart. It is a lack of grumbling and complaining that sets God's people apart. When Israel was grumbling, the the primary problem here is that they're acting like all of the pagan nations around them. All of the pagan nations grumbled about life, and of course they would. They didn't know God. They didn't have any hope for a future beyond this life. What else would you do but grumble if you were in that situation? But God's people have the contentment that comes with relationship with the living maker of the universe. God's people have hope for life beyond this world. And so God's people are totally different. We are set apart from the world by the lack of grumbling and complaining that takes place in our life. That's why Philippians 2 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God says the world is crooked and twisted, but you can shine like lights among those people. And the way that you can shine like lights is by being a people who are totally devoid of any grumbling or complaining in your life. Right? Be free from all grumbling and complaining, he says. Of course we're going to be free from grumbling and complaining because we are filled with the contentment that comes only from relationship with God and the hope that he has given us beyond this world for eternal life with him. Things go on in this world and they don't bother us because this isn't our home anyway. Right? What, What does it matter? We've got a different home that we're living for. And so like the Israel, we learn from the Israelites never to be a people of grumbling and complaining. As we read through the book of Numbers, we see a people who started with so much hope. As they take off from Mount Sinai, the world is filled with hope and possibility. And then they fall into sin and everything falls apart. 
And it may be that as you sit here this morning, you feel like that as you see this list of sins in 1 Corinthians 10. As you look at your life, maybe you feel like you have been wandering in the wilderness recently. As you examine yourself this morning, maybe you see a mouth that has been filled with grumbling and complaining. Maybe you see how certain idols of our world have been creeping in and becoming a priority over Jesus in what motivates you in your daily life. Maybe sexual immorality has crept in and has taken hold in your life or you're dissatisfied with God's provision. If you feel like you are wandering in the wilderness this morning, there's two things I want to say to you and they both come from this book of 1 Corinthians. The first is this. No matter what sin you have committed, no matter how long you have been wandering in the wilderness, you can be totally forgiven by the work of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. All the sins imaginable were on display in the city of Corinth, just as they were on display among the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. And they indulged in all of those sins. But what Paul writes to them here is that they now, through the work of Jesus Christ, have been forgiven. They have been washed. They've been justified. They've been declared righteous in the courtroom of God because of the work of Jesus. They've been sanctified. Their lives are being made clean by what God has done. Such were some of you, but now you're different. You're made new in Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. And no matter what sin you've committed, no matter how long you have been wandering in the wilderness, Jesus Christ can forgive your sins if you come to him and trust him and seek his forgiveness of your sins. The second thing I want to communicate is that you can have victory by the power of Jesus. Whatever that sin is, whatever wanderings are going on in your life, you can have victory by the power of Jesus. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians 10 today as we look at the book of Numbers. And the end of the passage that we've been looking at is verse 13, which says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I, I think as we're walking through 1 Corinthians 10 and we're seeing all of these sins and how Israel failed in the wilderness over and over again, there might be a temptation for us to say, wow, failure seems inevitable. The people of Israel just failed again and again and again. Failure sure seems inevitable. And if you combine that with some certain areas in my life, where I've lost the battle on multiple occasions, I might be tempted to say, in some areas, failure is just inevitable. Right? Do you have those areas? I've had a couple of those areas in my life 
right? Where, where when I looked at that area, I'd failed so many times, I said, well, I'm sure tomorrow I'm just going to fail in that area. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 battles against that and says, that is not true. No matter how many times you've failed in the past, no matter how long you've wandered in the wilderness, through the work of Jesus Christ and the powerful Holy Spirit within you, you are no longer bound by those temptations. You can have victory over that sin tomorrow when it rears its ugly head. And so, friends, I, I want to encourage you, if you feel like you are wandering in the wilderness, that through the power of Jesus Christ, you don't have to wander any longer. You can have victory over those sins that have plagued you, that, that so easily entangle us. One key to overcoming temptation and gaining victory, the key to overcoming temptation and gaining victory, is intimacy and closeness with God. And we gain that intimacy through prayer and spending time with him. And when Jesus taught us how to pray, the model that we're to use when we pray, one of the six petitions he gave to us that we're to pray each and every day has to do with battling temptation, doesn't it? Right? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And a part of our prayer life every day is to, be, to, is to battle against those temptations we know we're going to face because we faced them each of the days this week. And to go to battle with, with God's Spirit and say, Lord, please be with me. Keep me from temptations in these areas. Lord, be with me, and if I have to face temptation, help me to overcome evil and the evil one as he tries to bring temptation into our lives. This is to be a core of our prayer life, right? Daily battling the temptations that we face, seeking to be as far away from temptation as possible and to overcome it when it does come into our lives. Let us be a people who, who are battling seeking that together in prayer. I want to give us an opportunity to just do that for a moment in silence right now. Any sins that the Spirit's brought to your life, any battles, any wanderings in the wilderness, would you just spend a moment seeking God's forgiveness, recognizing what he has done for you on the cross, seeking his power to overcome it today, tomorrow, in whatever you might face. Father, we are so thankful for the work that you have done through Jesus Christ on the cross and the new life we have in resurrection from the dead. Lord, we pray that your spirit will help us to live into that today. In Jesus' name, amen.